Coming up on today's show, it is back to school for Alberta students. Today, we'll chat with Irvin student about how to fix Canada's education catastrophe. AHS has announced some funding to stabilize the EMS situation in our province. It's not good. And Twitter recently labeling a liberal tweet as media manipulation. So we're talking about back to school. And the majority of kids in Alberta head back to school today, in fact. Now, there's no question, nobody can deny that the last year for sure, and year and a half, really, um, of education has been, well, it's been chaotic. It has not been normal in any sense of the word, and obviously there's going to be issues surrounding that. Now, uh, our producers came across a great piece, um, How to Fix Canada's Education Catastrophe in Five Steps. Um, catastrophe is the way it's being characterized. And no doubt, for some students, it is. There's no question about that. Um, So what do we need to do? We're trying to strive for a normal year of schooling this year. Hopefully that's what we have, or as close to normal as we can get. But what have we learned over the last 18 months, and what do we need to do to make sure we get the best out of this year? The author of the piece, Irvin Student, is president of the Institute for the 21st Century Questions, chair of the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids, post-pandemic, and editor-in-chief and publisher of Global Brief Magazine. He has a book coming out called Canada Must Think for Itself, 10 Thesis for Our Country's Survival and Success in This Century. Irvin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Shane. Hello to everyone in Edmonton and Alberta. And when we talk about the last year and a half, and you characterize it as a catastrophe, and I think, you know, for some kids, there's no question about it. And some of the numbers we're going to talk about uh, in your piece blew my mind. I had no idea. But um, when we take a look at the way the last year and a half has gone, why do you call it a catastrophe? I mean, what are the major issues that leap out to you is this is a really bad situation? It's been a catastrophe at the level of the individual, the students, the kids, the most uh, vulnerable population in, in our country in terms of their inability to speak for themselves and their need to uh, be prepared for the post-pandemic world. And it's been a catastrophe for the country because if we don't have an educated population that's ready for the post-pandemic world, we just cannot survive and succeed as a country. So it's been catastrophic because we've neither we've neither thought about the kids, their individual well-being, their survival, and the general uh, success of the country in a world that will be far more difficult. While other countries have continued to double down on both fronts, they've continued to educate their children, and they know that they have to be over-prepared for what's to come. Um, let's try and define what, what the last year and a half has meant in terms of some of those things you just talked about, uh, You know what it's, how it's affected the kids and how it's affected the country at large in terms of what we've missed out on and what we, for lack of a better term, messed up on for the last 18 months. Where, well, let's define exactly where the problems arise. So what happened, uh, Shay, to be clear for, for all your distinguished listeners, is that in May, March of last year, across Canada, and in much of the world, we had the largest improvised policy and public administration action in in modern history. That is, schools were closed almost everywhere, Mm -hmm. at least for a short period. Now what we understand is, as soon as school closures happened, and in most cases they happened with good intentions, death uh, occurred. And the death was that wasn't had nothing to do with COVID. It had to do that with kids who were all of a sudden ousted from school systems. What uh, is not seen on the screen is that while we imagine that kids pivoted seamlessly to online or virtual learning, at least 
6% of the national population had no access to internet or computer devices. So they were automatically ousted from that, what we call the second bucket. Right. They went into a third bucket called no school at all. And they stayed there the longer school stayed closed. And in Ontario and in other parts of the country, Alberta a little bit less, where you had prolonged school closure, they stayed there for a long time. But even those who were in the second bucket in virtual learning, if they were in an abusive home, if they were in a very poor home with economic pressures, if they were in a home with illness, if they were a home in which nobody spoke English or French, the language of instruction, uh, they were quickly ousted to the third bucket. And finally, the I think the, the darkest category of ouster was uh, high school and middle school kids for whom learning online after two to three months would lose all purpose. These are kids who could have been top students, captains of your hockey or soccer team, basketball team, and online all they had to do after two or three months was turn off the Zoom call, and that's it. They were out in the either. We were still online. We imagined that they were enrolled, and life took took its course. Yeah. And over time, they, they stayed in the third bucket. So now we have, Shea, these are the figures that shock. We calculate uh, about 200,000 kids in the third bucket, no school at all in in Canada, most catastrophically in central Canada, a little bit less in western and northern Canada. We have to get these kids back. That is insane. 200,000 kids that had no education whatsoever. That have had, uh, that are in this third bucket. They have, at various periods, been ousted uh, I would say permanently into this third bucket of no school at all. Nobody looking for them. No, no one in many cases aware that there are no school at all. And we imagine that somehow they're just either going to fare well in life or they're just going to come back as soon as we open the school. But that's why we started this commission because we realized it's the problem starts here in Canada, in one of the most advanced countries in the world, in its leading provinces, no less. But it's a global problem because, as I mentioned, uh, across the world, schools were shuttered and no one understood what would happen as soon as you shuttered. So the number around the world we calculate is 500 million kids in this third bucket who were just in our schools last year, if you imagine. So this is the future of the country. These are young people. 200,000 is a massive quantum. And these are... Uh, regular kids, poor and rich alike, they are. They would have been on, in our hockey rinks just yeah. a year ago. Unbelievable. Okay, so you've laid out five things that we need to do uh, this year to make sure that we start to address some of these problems and make sure we don't repeat any of these mistakes. Let's start with the first of all, and I guess the obvious one, never, ever close the schools again, right? Never close the schools again, ever, mm-hmm. under no circumstances, unless there's war. And I mean that uh, literally, unless there's an invasion right at the doorstep of the school, we know that the school closure immediately results in permanent ouster, and these kids will die young, if I may use very un-Canadian language that is understood by other countries. So never, ever close the schools under any circumstances. So that is for clear message for our premiers, our uh, education ministers, and critically for our chief medical health officers who are, in many cases, forgive me for being direct, operating beyond their ken. They are not operating in an area that they understand. They are closing systems they do not see and do not understand to the death. That's the first step. The second one is that we need to find these third-bucket yeah. kids. Yeah, we got to reach out to them kids we and gotta, get them back in the fold. It is, uh, and if I may implore 
Albertans and colleagues and friends in the West. It must be a door-to-door operation, as is happening in other countries in the U.S. as well, where they have 15 to 20 million third-bucket kids. These are regular kids, but you're not going to get them out by just saying, come back or sending an email or saying, school's on. They've moved on in many cases. Some will come back if we do the return to school properly, but many will not, and that will be have very dark outcomes. So that is urgent. It's time urgent in the coming weeks, coming months ma- maximum. We need to get them back because there's a short window after which life goes on. Um, uh, but you know the, when you want to go to the other steps. Yeah, no, the, ne- the next point is kind of interesting because we're sort of talking to people about going back to school and how it's going to look. And, you know, some governments are putting in plans to sort of see if to do assessments and find out where we are um, and do any catch-up and stuff like that. So it's sort of a, we'll see how it goes and we'll adapt as it goes kind of a thing. Your third point is, no, 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 no. We've got to hit this running. We've got to go full on from day one. That's right. That's right. For two reasons. Uh, one is, well, the, first of all, the, the language I use is that the return to school, back to school, and happy back to school to everyone in Alberta. I uh, wish you a great year. The return to school must be hyper-energetic. It must be full-on. No conditions, no theater, no zombie language, no zombies. Full-on. It's got to be the best year of their lives and it's got to be promised as such it needs to be warm it needs to be contentful with standards and play and extracurriculars everything short of that gets us uh it consolidates our catastrophe and that is what our medical health officers and our and our politicians often unfortunately still living mentally in 2019 don't understand which is that we have two problems with the, with the schooling uh, that have occurred over the last, two critical problems over the last year and a half. One is huge problems in, in uh, learning losses across the, across the student body that's remained in the system, and the third bucket. And you cannot address either of these two problems with uh, schooling that is short of hyper-energetic. So the return to school must be full-on energetic, enthusiastic, with zest and zeal. It's got to be a national mission. We've got to educate these kids uh, to the nines, and we've got to promise them that. So the greeting at the door must be warm. Welcome to school. Welcome back. We're happy to have you. We're off to the races. This will be the best year of your lives. We will not destabilize. And I want to say on the reverse is true, that those who threaten to destabilize schooling Closed schooling, threatened to destabilize the schooling of any individual under any conditions, now operate in the realm of policy crimes because they will send the kids to very dark places in life after uh, they reach adulthood. So that's the third one. Well, I think we're. I think most people have come to the understanding that we need to keep the schools open, right? I think that's sort of the consensus that we've reached at most levels. And you know, I mean, from Fauci to Tam to they've they've all said we got. The schools need to be the last thing to close. They shouldn't close. And so hopefully you're right that that we won't see that reversal coming back. But once we've got the kids in school and we've got them charged up and we're ready to go, you say we need to focus on excellence. I mean, but a lot of people are talking about we need to do catch up. We need to do make sure people are ready to go. You're saying, no, no, focus on the excellence here. Well, the the fourth point is, is very much that, which is let's stop playing defense and let's not say we're doing it out of an abundance of caution. This is zombie language that will consolidate the crisis. We need to double down on excellence and quality because we're behind. We're behind as against a world that will be that much more difficult for our kids. So we're feeding them to the wolves if they're underprepared, undereducated. That's our current reality. Recognizing that, we have to say, well... 
We have all this catch-up. The world of tomorrow is much more difficult, and the leading nations have continued to educate. So where are we? If we, if we go hyper-cautious, zombie schools, as I call them, with no standards, no play, threat of closure all the time, then our kids will not survive and not compete in the world to come. That's just a strategic fact. So double down on offense, mm-hmm. excellence. We are educating them at the highest possible levels. No more defense, no more talk about safe schools. This is all zombie language that has only resulted in, in catastrophe. So that's point forward. Offense, offense, offense. Yeah, get after it. And uh, the last one's kind of interesting. I mean, it's the environment itself. It's the environment that the kids are learning in, the classroom situation itself. We need to do better there. That's right. The final one is is a challenge. So if we get the first four right, what does schooling look like in the 21st century? Well, no country has figured it out. We know what it is not. It is not strictly online schooling for years on end. That doesn't work socially. It doesn't work pedagogically. It's not hybrid schooling or synchronous asynchronous school these are all um i would say zombie improvisations of the last year and a half they're forgivable but now we need to think and no country has it perfect so there's an opportunity for canada to 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 figure it out what does it look like what does schooling look like in the 21st century post-pandemic understanding the need to catch up to double down on excellence to get the third kid bucket kids back and to never have this catastrophe repeat itself again this must be a one-time early 21st century catastrophe for canada that we should always remember was the biggest public policy mistake of the pandemic what's happened in education by far much bigger than public health much bigger than the economy because the consequences are long term so let's figure out uh, for the world and for ourselves while we're at it and for the kids what the classroom looks like physically, virtually, in its ensemble for the mm-hmm. needs to, uh, of tomorrow. I appreciate the conversation, uh, Irvin. Uh, some really interesting stuff, and uh, I think a lot of people agree with what you have to say, and uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, my pleasure. Have a nice day. Thank you very much. That's Irvin Student, who uh, put together a piece called uh, How to Fix Canada's Education Catastrophe in Five Steps. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. There's a story that we uh, have had a lot of people saying, hey, can we find out what's going on with EMS in this province? That's what we're going to do right now. Uh, A lot of things happening around the EMS file right now. There was an announcement this week by the province um, that they will bring in $8.3 million in new funding um, to uh, make temporary EMS positions permanent. Uh, There's 70 positions that will be made um, into temporary full-time and 30 full-time positions hired in Alberta's two largest cities. So the province is taking this step. Uh, We're going to chat now with um, Mike Parker. Mike is the president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta. Uh, Mike, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Hey, good morning, Shane. Thank you. So, okay, let's let's just break down this announcement. Eight point three million in new funding meant to stabilize the EMS service in our province, which we know is facing some big big issues. Um, will this do the job? Will this help? 
It's a great question, Shay. The 8, 8.2, they've touted as, as new funding. i got to say that it's not new. It's a uh, replacement for the cuts that they put in in 2019. So they've been running these extra units unfunded. They rent over budget, for lack of better terms. And what they're doing now is just covering those deficits. So this doesn't change. There will not be a single additional ambulance added to the system. This is only paying for now what they've been trying to do since 2019 when they cut the funding under this current government. Okay, so we're talking about basically trying to maintain what's in place now, which we know is facing some pressures automatically. So it's not actually expanding it. What about, um, they do mention here, 70 casual positions go to full-time and 30 full-time hired in Alberta's two largest cities. That's correct. Those were hired in 2019, right? Uh, I think I think even prior to 2019, Shay, I don't have the exact for you and the listeners, but what I can tell you is that those 30 positions have already been staffed by casuals being worked full time anyway. Okay, uh, didn't have benefits, didn't have a, a pension, so so they're changing those to a full time, uh, and the 70 from from what I'm getting uh, run until spring of 22. So the question is, what happens in the spring of 22? I guess we'll just roll those folks back to casual. I, I don't know what's going to happen here. Again, uh, they're touting it as a workforce stabilization, and that's the best I can get. Uh, any addition in this current environment, I'll take it. Um, I hope it makes it uh, safer for our frontline providers that are out there trying to do all they can. But it does nothing to increase. And if you look today, uh, our members are now on a social media platform showing how critical this province truly truly is when you see no ambulances available and, and code reds province-wide uh, hourly now. Um, yeah, and to be fair, I mean, uh, the minister, uh, Tyler Shandro, did say that this is a stopgap measure to try and stabilize yeah. things and they have to come up with something. But you're saying there's no work, being, like we don't know what is going to happen after this temporary stopgap measure? There's no plan in place at this point? It was the question that I asked when I was notified on this, Jay. I said it directly. I said, this adds no additional trucks. What is the plan for spring of 22? And they said, we're working on it. So uh, they've been working on it for 10 years. We've been sitting in this place for a really long time, Jay. Uh, It's nice to hear that uh, uh, they've replaced the money that they took away. Uh, But what we need to do is look at ensuring all Albertans are protected and to take care of those who are taking care of us. Um, Okay, so the other issue that we had a lot of people uh, texting me about want some clarity on what's going on. Um, Rural ambulances being pulled into the big cities to cover shortcomings. I mean, just what is the current state of the ambulance service in our province right now? How bad is it? Well, I think you nailed it there. And and as an outlet for our membership, they are now uh, pushing it out onto social media to show where these trucks are. Units being dropped for no staffing, uh, units being pulled from rural services as far away as Kananaskis or or outlying areas in Edmonton to be brought in, leaving areas like a Slave Lake exposed with no coverage and trying to be backed up by places like Peace River or High Prairie. And that's what they look like all the time. That's that's a daily occurrence now. Uh, Our units that were dedicated to transferring folks to get to their appointments and stuff uh, are all being pulled into life support. Uh, it's a, it's absolutely a mismanagement from, from AHS and failure from this government uh, wholeheartedly because they know the problem. They've seen the problem. They, they recognize that pulling 8 million out wasn't such a great idea, so they're putting it back. But none of this uh, solves the issue. Our dispatchers are being run into the ground trying to handle call volume shade that went from uh, roughly 1,000 a day in this province to over 1,500 a day now. We just can't keep up. 
correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but this isn't a brand new issue. These ambulance shortfalls have been there for well over the UCP's term, haven't they? I mean, we've had we've had problems with um, you know ambulance delays and code reds and things like that going back. I'm thinking at least for ten years, right? I would I would suggest since the start of my career in '96. Uh, okay. But, uh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, the, the code red issue, the the resource to match call volume and population growth, has been a concern forever. Yeah. And. And I've, and I've heard the blowback saying all we want is more members. You know what? I don't need more members. I have a lot of members that need my attention right now under other announcements that are going on. What I need is the province to protect our citizens and the province to take care of our first responders on the front lines by ensuring they have the resources needed to do their work. That's what I need. Okay. Mike, I appreciate you giving some insight as to what's going out there. Thanks very much for your time. Jane, stay safe, and thank you so much. You bet. Thank you very much. That is Mike Parker, who is president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta. And whenever we bring on a union rep, we, we, we get the same text from people. Of course, the unions just want more members, and the unions just want more money. And, and as Mike said, he's heard that before. Um, and I think, you know, it's easy to just dismiss what Mike has to say by saying, ah, oh, it's just a union that wants more money. But we are, I mean, you cannot deny the reality of, and, and people are reporting it from all over the province, right? Where, you know, Peace River doesn't have an ambulance service because it's been pulled into Grand Prairie or Kananaskis has been pulled into Calgary or whatever the case may be. There is certainly an issue out there, which is why the health minister uh, came out this week and said, we need to make sure that we're doing what we can, so we're going to put $8.3 million in funding uh, to try and stabilize this. That's what he called it. He wants to stabilize this, and he says this funding is important. Uh, uh, Tyler Shandro said, we need to do our best to support our paramedics and all healthcare workers now as we continue to see high demand on our healthcare services, and this decision by AHS should provide some tangible short-term relief as we work as long on long-term solutions. So the health minister is not saying this guy's out to lunch and doesn't know what he's talking about. He's recognizing there is a problem. If you're looking for solutions, you are recognizing that there is a problem. Uh, and I think we all know there is. Right now, though, we're going to talk about social media once again. Um, yesterday, we talked about Facebook. And I think the, the, the underwhelming, the overwhelming message was stop it stop with facebook it's not a credible source for anything um it's just not period um twitter where does it shape up same thing okay twitter can can lead you down some rabbit holes as well um but we're going to talk a bit about the unusual step they took but anyway we're going to be talking about social media in the election campaign and how much of an influence it can have we're chatting with um angus bridgman now who is director of canadian election misinformation project which is monitoring what is happening online during the election angus thanks so much for your time today appreciate you joining us my pleasure so i guess let's start with uh, the big news that came out of twitter during this federal election campaign of course they took what is a pretty rare step of slapping a media manipulated media label on a tweet by christia freeland i guess the manipulation was she didn't include the full answer from aaron o'toole where he did support public health care universal health care and then said he was open to some private components that's the details of it but um it became national news that twitter did this just their action essentially when that happens, um, doesn't that just make it a bigger story? Like, probably people probably wouldn't even known this had happened for the most part. Yeah, so so that's certainly true. Um, generally, when Twitter labels something or Facebook labels something, it does actually have a slight suppressive effect on engagement. People see that label, makes them less likely to share it. But in this case, it's the first very high-profile 
during a Canadian election, you know, very important minister, um, Twitter labeled this and it blew up and made the news cycle. It was sort of three, four days yeah. last week. Um, this was everywhere. We did some, some sort of research on this and, and that looked at sort of social media engagement metrics as well as some surveying. And what we found is that about 10% of people who had seen the story actually saw it on Twitter. As for the other 90%, they were seeing it from other sources, whether they be Facebook or primarily through traditional media organizations. So something like 62, 63% of Canadians who saw the story didn't actually see the tweet. They saw Canadians reporting on it. So that means that, it, you know, it really was the label that drove this news cycle and not necessarily just the actions of, of um, or the, the content of the tweet. Is that a consideration, do you think, for the people at Twitter and Facebook? I mean, is that part of their calculation as to whether or not we go ahead and put the label on here? Because you're right, it often draws more attention. So I think actually in this case it wasn't part of it. You saw sort of uh, some ambiguity about this. So initially the French language version of the tweet was flagged, and then the English language one was after. The way this often works in these companies is it's sort of algorithmically motivated, but ultimately it's just a fact checker on the end, and they probably saw, okay, this video has been spliced a half dozen times, this is manipulated media, and, and flagged it. It wasn't likely a, a larger decision by somebody in the upper echelons of Twitter. However, given sort of the firestorm that went around this, yeah, social media companies are going to have to be very careful going forward about what they label. We also saw this with, of course, Twitter and Trump during the last American election. Yeah, and that, I mean, I think this whole misinformation and, and um, the impact that it can have on election campaigns specifically, but other political issues as well, um, is definitely on the minds of many people. And I'm sure that these social media platforms are feeling that pressure, right, and feeling as though people expect them to act in some way to try and at least get the information verified if they can. Yeah, exactly. They've become gatekeepers and producers of an enormous amount of information uh, that circulates during an election. The majority of Canadians now get news from social media, and so they, they are very important players. One thing that is sort of interesting about all this is that if you know that a manipulated media um, label from Twitter might boost your signal, this now becomes part of traditional media and parties sort of calculations around this stuff. So if you know that maybe you can boost, you know, your message by labeling or doing it a little bit provocatively and trying to actually elicit a label from a social media company, you can you can certainly see something somebody like the People's Party of Canada, you know, potentially trying to leverage that as their supporters tend to be very concerned about sort of social media moderation overreach. And so this is now just another another you know, chess piece in the game of, of politics. And that that's interesting because, of course, the, the social media companies operate in a largely unregulated way and sort of get to set the rules of that game. And I think you make a really good point because there's, there's two things there, I think, and one of them, tell me if I'm wrong or if your research has shown any of this. There's a lot of people out there, especially I'm thinking a lot of the American media companies, that know putting out something that they know is false um, and will get labeled as, you know, questionable or whatever the case may be. A lot of people will see what they put out. They won't see the correction. They won't see the label. And that story that they initially put out, they know is going to be bounced around throughout the stratosphere and everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to hear it. Um, And then the follow-up, of course, is once they're censored or once they're labeled for spreading the misinformation, they can complain and say they're being targeted because they're conservative or whatever the case may be. So there is a, there's a strategy in spreading the misinformation. 
Absolutely. And yeah, there is some research that shows this, for example, that fake news spreads faster and more widely on Facebook and Twitter than uh, real news. And that's largely because of its highly like emotional, evocative content. There also is some evidence that fact-checking only reaches a very small fraction of the initial audience Mm -hmm. of a piece of misinformation. So certainly these are considerations for bad actors or those who are trying to mislead Canadians. And I mean, obviously this is a concern. It's a dangerous game that they're playing because, of course, if you're a political party and you're known to spread false or or misleading information consistently, there might be some blowback. But this is this is part of the political playbook now, and it's here to stay. And social media companies are kind of caught in the middle on this stuff, and they're are trying to to moderate while still preserving sort of their profit bottom line. And and there's just you know there's a whole a whole set of of really complicated considerations here. There really, really is, and it sort of just really highlights the point that we have put a tremendous amount of. I guess responsibility, whether they accept it or not, but have given these social media platforms just a tremendous amount of influence when it comes to the information realm. Uh, we've handed that them to them um, and asked them to try and moderate it in some way. Is it even a fair ask of these companies? So there's there's a <laughs> the fair ask is a, is an interesting question as well. I the, the thing that I get caught up with here is that. Look, this is, these are these are large companies that basically operate in an unregulated manner. Totally, and they're they're enormously profitable companies, and have come to dominate sort of the information ecosystem, and and have thus far avoided regulation and are doing sort of voluntary regulation in an effort to stave off further kind of oversight. Um, I, I, for one, am not comfortable having them be the arbiters of truth, them being able to say this is this is content that is okay to share, this is content that is not okay to share, and to do so sort of in a unilateral manner. That makes me incredibly uncomfortable. There's also the other side, which is maybe, you know, uh, it's not fair to ask them, but I think actually they're, they would prefer to continue to operate in an unregulated manner and continue to do sort of band-aid solutions or half measures because... It, that way they can keep it from affecting their core business, right? Exactly. That's, that's really what they're concerned about. Have we seen improvement? Because this is not a new issue. Uh, you know, it's been something that's been talked about for at least, I would say, five or six years. Um, the manipulation of social media by foreign influences, all kinds of people doing it to influence election campaigns. Um, now that we're into this new election campaign, is it better? Uh, have they actually come up with meaningful solutions to some of these problems? I think it is certainly better than, say, a decade ago, where there was virtually no moderation and no oversight in this space. Um, COVID-19 really sped this along, where there was just such a huge amount of misinformation circulating on social media that platforms tended to adopt much more um, aggressive moderation policies. So, so there's definitely more action in this space. But there are some downstream consequences of that, and including people sort of moving off to, to non-mainstream platforms to have the discussions that they want to have, mm-hmm. uh, as well as now like an increasing distrust of the platforms, um, which coincides with sort of a distrust of traditional media and politicians and experts. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a thorny issue. I do think that it is good that these large platforms are attempting to work with the Canadian policy community to improve the types of content on their platforms, and we know this is an issue. So so that is heartening, but they are far from successful, and there continues to be enormous challenges. Huge challenges, yeah, absolutely. Um, Angus, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah, my pleasure. It was a great chat. Yeah, thanks for joining us. That's Angus Bridgman, who is director of the Canadian Election Misinformation Project. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.